everyone, and welcome back to Urban Wilderness, a podcast about my journey as a city-born novice to learn as much as I can about wilderness survival techniques and bushcraft. I'd like to start by welcoming everyone to 2021 and take a brief moment to acknowledge my hiatus. 2020 was a difficult year for all of us without precedent. In retrospect, it would have been a great opportunity to release some inspired content about quarantine or another episode about being stranded in the wilderness. Honestly, both would fit the theme of this podcast. But I reproduced. (laughs) I had a baby girl, and my podcast was put on the back burner. But now I'm back, and I plan to continue releasing content as often as I am able. My goal is to have a new episode out every month. I'm going to start off this year with a series called High School Apocalypse. A lot of us are stuck at home watching Netflix. I know I am. So I've decided to do a comprehensive summary and review of the Netflix series Daybreak. My goal is for a format similar to my episode on the novel Hatchet. To start, Daybreak premiered in 2019 and aired for one season. The overall theme of the show reminded me a lot of another series I watched called Freakish. Freakish premiered in 2016 and aired for two seasons. But that show is a Hulu exclusive, and in order to watch it here in Canada, my listeners would need a VPN, a virtual private network. What drew me to Daybreak was its affiliated podcast. It's a Netflix-produced podcast. It's got six episodes that premiered alongside the show in 2019. It's called The Only Podcast Left, and it's available on Google Podcasts and Spotify. The descriptions for the podcast episodes will tell you when they occur in the timeline. I'll be listening to the podcast after and releasing an episode on it to finish off this series. So this first episode is a discussion on survival techniques in Daybreak episodes 1 to 3. I'll start with the official Netflix description. Living his best life in a post-apocalyptic L.A., a slacker strives to find the girl of his dreams while outwitting mindless ghouls and cliquish gangs. The first frame is setting the tone for Glendale, California. Some framework for my fellow Canadians, Glendale is a city in the county of Los Angeles in the state of California, and its population sits at a little over 201,000. Before any real dialogue can take place, the main character, Josh Wheeler, breaks the fourth wall and addresses the audience. As this happens, his classroom fades away to ruins until it eventually reveals the shambles that is present-day 2019. During his initial exposition, an explosion is shown in downtown LA, and Josh describes what happens as little dictators with big eagles can launch a nuke with a tweet, and then one day they did. He declares that almost everyone over the age of 18 is gone and suggests further that the bombs were bioweapons because adults within the blast radius were all turned into goo. The ones that remain are zombies called ghoulies. They're textbook undead, except for their last thoughts that filled their empty heads being repeated over and over again. The bombs also resulted in the mutation of local Glendale animals, The first examples shown are a boar-sized pug and a squirrel with approximately two dozen eyes. Both show signs of altered physique and aggression. Josh also explains that not all the bombs that fell resulted in an explosion. It's subtle and suggests that dud bombs are an occurrence, 
but leaves us guessing as to whether they are common or rare. He encounters a missile half buried in the asphalt of a suburban street. He states that this is a deal breaker when searching for a place to live. When choosing a home to squat in, he considers the defense of a minefield, a moat, in addition to a drawbridge. Now, a minefield. The most realistic of the three options he mentions, but it's still a very difficult feat to accomplish. Honestly, I worry about ending on, up on some watch list for Googling how to turn my property into a minefield. I'm seriously not going to type that into any search engine. Let me give you a basic overview of landmines instead. Landmines are explosive devices that are designed to detonate when triggered by pressure or a tripwire. They may disable any person or vehicle that comes into contact them with an explosion or shrapnel fragments released at high speeds. When stepped on, a landmine doesn't make a soft click and then explodes after the pressure is lifted. It explodes the moment you step on it. Now, a claymore mine is a directional mine developed for military use. The mine fires steel balls out about 100 meters with a 60-degree arc in front of the device. It's used primarily in ambushes, but is also used against unarmored vehicles. The moat. It's a no-go in California because of the U.S. Drought Monitor. It's, it measured the longest duration of a drought in California, which lasted 376 weeks, beginning on December 27, 2011. It pretty much overlaps with this drought, and Josh wouldn't have had access to water of any kind in a large enough volume to create a moat. Now the drawbridge. Here I have to incorporate research and the grace of being brief. There's more than one kind of drawbridge, but all of them require engineering and time. Your construction will be noticed. Even if you can keep away rival human survivors and ghoulies and mutated animals, there's still the risk of dud missiles and bombs in the daybreak lore. Combine this with a lack of moats and it's just plain ridiculous. Speaking of ridiculous, at this point in the story, we are granted a glimpse of the first human villain as Josh fills us in on more of the apocalyptic backstory. We see a lone human, we'll say it's a he at this point, as he's known as Baron Triumph. He's a lightly armored lone wanderer on a motorcycle, but he's alone. We've already covered the damage a single mine can do to an unarmed vehicle. The concept of the Baron surviving alone for six months in his infamy is nonsensical. This is a first mention of a time frame. The first episode occurs six months after the bombs fell. The children and teens who survived have formed tribes that both guard and patrol their own territory. Our protagonist states that since the borders of these territories shift, he doesn't state how often these shifts occur, but for this reason, he prefers to, quote, stay in his own lane. So just how important are allies in a survival situation? This is another segment where I'm going to struggle to be brief. I'll link the Wikipedia article to apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic fiction on Twitter. Maybe my listeners can decide for themselves. Can I do that here? Maybe I will to make a point. I think as a survival novice who was city born and raised, I can attest to the importance of social util utility and bonding. It's safety in numbers, as well as trade contracts in an urban society. All of these things are needs, 
It's not a bad thing to want to put down roots, even if you're forced to move from one location to another or alter your borders, the borders of your home. In the Daybreak lore, the survivors of Glendale have been forced to reevaluate their needs and methods of meeting them several times in a six-month period. It's an inspiring story. Our protagonist, Josh, credits his survival to his hunting, fishing, purifying water, in addition to rigging up solar panels. As a survival-themed podcast, I've recorded one hunting episode, and I definitely plan to do more. I also plan to have episodes solely focused on fishing. In my first episode, I reviewed the novel Hatchet, and I talked about why our bodies require water, purifying water through boiling and charcoal filters. Now, let's explore the basics of solar panels. Individual solar cells make up a solar panel. These cells are composed of layers of silicone and phosphorus. These provide the negative charge. Layers of boron provide the positive charge. Solar panels absorb photons from sunlight and in doing so initiate an electrical current. The energy generated from photons striking the surface of the solar panel allows the electrons to be knocked out of their atomic orbits and into the electrical field generated by the solar cells. This electric field then pulls these free electrons into a directional current. This entire process is known as the photovoltaic effect. So in summary, fishing, hunting, purifying water, in addition to securing and rigging solar panels, are all very valuable skills, for sure. Josh is a very talented and competent survivor on his own. He does join forces with two other characters, Angelica and Wesley, and in doing so, takes them to his old condo in which he stashes supplies. We're shown his stored food, both preserved by chemicals like junk food and instant noodles, or through methods like canning and pickling. He also has bottled water, toilet paper, and O-negative blood bags stored in a mini-fridge. Each of these resources are prized basics for survival and trading. When the trio is confronted by a mob of hostile tribals, the blood saves them. I've got to admit, they find a very original use for the blood to grab victories from the grasp of their enemies. Water balloons full of blood are thrown and blood rains down on them directly from a bucket. An entire bucket! That's insanely creative. I've seen zombie movies where there's been a bleeding human sacrifice or a decoy of some kind involving blood to lure zombies away. This is the first time I've ever seen water balloons used to lure a mob, and the results do not disappoint. This incredible display invites a ghoulie massacre, and the creatures prove to be the type of undead that are fast and agile. But they aren't the only antagonists in this series. At the beginning of episode two, the, the villain Baron Triumph is properly introduced, and to escape him, the cast enter the local mall. In the shopping center, they find the power and AC on, and it's also immaculately clean for having been deserted for six months. It's revealed that the bombs left it untouched, and the remaining power supply is a result of solar panels on the roof. I touched briefly on solar panels earlier, but maintenance of the panels is a must. How does one maintain power using solar panels for six months? The best way to start is by cleaning your solar panels, and cleaning them often. A quick search suggests using a soft rag, like a microfiber glass cleaning cloth, and a biodegradable soap. Cleaners like these, by definition, are deemed biodegradable if bacteria can break down the solution into water, carbon dioxide, and other more organic materials within six months. This, coincidentally, is how often solar panels should be cleaned. Even more interesting is that solar panels have a surprisingly long lifespan, 25 years, and service is recommended every 10 years. 
Makes sense for a mall in California, I guess. I'll get back to you on that after I've actually been to the Golden State. But the shopping center has more to offer than solar panel. Its parking lot is rigged with tripwires and claymore mines. The absurdity of booby traps is addressed inside the mall when an anvil is attached to a tripwire that uses candy as bait. I'm left to assume you can't just go out and get an anvil since when I Google how to get an anvil, the top results are Minecraft tutorials. <laughs> so the trio finds sanctuary in the mall, and we're given a better look at the greater Glendale area as the tribes gather. I would like to take a moment to say I would be in the 4-H tribe. A great illustration of post-apocalyptic survival is trade among these micro-societies. The 4-H tribe offers up two healthy, non-mutated sheep. This is hastily overlooked for some reason. Are you kidding me? Ugh. Let me explain. Bull and non-irradiated mutton are of value, of course, but there's also lambs, lamb meat, milk, and cheese. Well, cheese if you have rennet. Rennet is a cocktail of biological enzymes that thickens milk for the process of cheese making. It's a strong trade, just like the one the second tribe has to offer. A keg of beer. Alcohol fermentation renders most groundwater um, and well water safe to drink. Brewing beer first requires boiling the water. This enables the enzymes to chew up the carbohydrates of the malt starch into fermentable sugars. Heating the water to a boil also kills germs and makes the water portable again. Now germs is an umbrella term for pathogens like bacteria, viruses, fungi, and protozoa. Once the water has been brewed into beer, the alcohol percentage will make it uninhabitable to harmful germs as well as most kinds of worms. And it can be stored for months. If the brew is hopped, its shelf, ripe, its shelf life increases even further. It's increased by lupulin, a bactericide which is found in hops. So, intense survival situations can involve beer and cheese. Pretty great, right? Too good to last, it seems. Josh bursts our good feelings bubble by falling ill to gangrene. He's bitten by a ghoulie, and he tries to chop off his afflicted appendage, his index finger. It's already too late when he's informed that a bite from a ghoulie can't make you become one. Angelica informs Josh of this truth and takes over the fourth wall breaking to become our protagonist for an episode. It's her mission to acquire antibiotics, and she has to drive to a pharmacy in enemy territory to get them. I worked at a pharmacy for years when I was in university, so I can tell you quite a bit about it. When Angelica blows the, the door off the pharmacy safe... Okay, first, pharmacies don't lock up their antibiotics. Yes, they restrict access to all of their medications, but limited space in actual safes is reserved for controlled substances. And two, it's usually a bank-quality safe, so a blast strong enough to blow the door off of it will melt the pill bottles and the storage containers. Now that's hopefully not too off topic, but I like to integrate my own knowledge when helpful. Now after blowing the safe, Angelica encounters cheerleaders who have become Amazon warriors. I don't know if any woman has ever mastered archery in the six short months these ladies have. Uh, I certainly didn't, especially moving targets. What I can say is that I grasp the concept of aiming. Shooting an arrow is akin to throwing a ball in terms of instinct. With practice, you just know how to compensate for distance and speed. Your bow compensates just like your arms, I guess because of your arms. I, I love the idea of killing zombies with a bow because the benefits are so worth the practice. Firstly, you can retrieve your animal for possible reuse. 
training is quiet and the actual hunt is just as quiet. And this might dissuade any rival tribes from picking a fight with you in hot spots where undead gather in large mobs because your weapons are nowhere near, near as noisy as firearms or explosives. It's a stark difference in tactics that wasn't obvious to me at first. The first three episodes of Daybreak gave me a lot to consider, and I feel like this is a great place to end part one. I will post part two in about a month, so be sure to subscribe to Urban Wilderness on Google Podcasts or on Spotify to get a notification when the next episode is up. You can follow me on Instagram at Urban Wilderness Podcast and on Twitter at Urban Wild Pod. Feel free to message me or comment on my post, even if it's just to say hi. I love to hear from you guys. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Urban Wilderness reminding you to leave the road and take the trails.